So, where we are in the book of Acts. You know, basically, if you look back, we're already into chapter 9, going into chapter 10. If you look back over the last nine chapters, what you have seen uh, is in, uh, such an immense growth that has taken place uh, in the life of the church. Really, the gospel has expanded all over the place, at least in that general vicinity. You know, we see it begin in Jerusalem, uh, where Jesus uh, is, is known to, to be raised from the dead and, and then to be ascended into heaven. He's, he's commissioning his disciples, and they start there in Jerusalem, and it heads into Samaria, we saw, uh, and even Philip brings it down uh, into the desert area toward Gaza. Uh, and then finally, we see with the, with the conversion of Saul that it's into Damascus uh, with Ananias being a disciple there. And uh, last week we saw that it has even gone farther into, uh, into Lida or Lida and uh, is making its way toward the coast. And really, it's just there's unprecedented growth that is taking place here. Uh, the gospel's going forth, the church is growing, uh, people are getting saved uh, and believing in Jesus Christ. And so today we see that continue to happen. All that Jesus said that was going to happen is happening, and it continues to happen here in chapter 9, verse 36. So I want you to come with me to a, a city called Joppa uh, and uh, Acts 9, 36. And let's take a look and see what God is doing as the church continues to grow there. Acts 9, 36. I'm going to read through verse 43. The passage says this, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. When they washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Leda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. Then calling the saints, uh, I'm sorry, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So here we are, verse 36, in the city called Joppa. Uh, and I'm not the best at the new pronunciations and all that of, of cities and whatnot, but uh, it's actually pronounced, I think, Jaffa, and now has become Tel Aviv. If anyone knows where that is, it's basically the same area. And so this is where we are. And uh, in the last passage with the healing of Aeneas, we see that, that Peter is healing someone about 10 miles from there. So this uh, this Joppa, Jaffa, is about 10 miles uh, from Lita. So in, in our world, it's basically a, a little bit of a distance like downtown to Cicero. 
right? It's about 10 miles from downtown Syracuse up to Cicero. Uh, For many in that day, it would have been about a three-hour walk, right? So not too far. Or, you know, realistically, if you're dug late, you know, that that might be a one-hour run, right? Ten miles, a little less? That would be a good run? If you're me, three hours. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it is what it is. Still staying at three hours. So that's basically what we see, that Peter, uh, and, and really what we see in last week's narrative is he's in a city uh, a little bit uh, uh, northwest of Jerusalem, but now we're going more towards the, the edge of land here to the Mediterranean Sea in this town about 10 miles away. So we're also introduced to uh, a disciple. A disciple's there. Don't miss that, right? A disciple is there. Someone who follows and believes in Jesus lives in this city. So the gospel is growing, right? It's being spread uh, throughout the region. So there's a a disciple there named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Basically, Tabitha is the Aramaic name. Dorcas is the Greek name. And I know what you're all thinking. It's a very odd name considering what we say, uh, Dorcas, you know, Dork, whatever, in English. But nonetheless, this is her name. And uh, so we see that it means gazelle. I don't know if there's any significance there. You know, that her name means gazelle. Uh, you know, it's like a deer. Uh, but really what we see is the significance of her life, right? She was full of good works and acts of charity. The substance of her life is really what the, the writer here is emphasizing. Someone in, 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 this, in this city of Joppa is a disciple, and this disciple who follows Jesus is known not just for her name, but for the substance of her life. And I think really that gives us a quick little insight into what being a follower of Jesus is, doesn't it? To be a follower of Jesus, to be someone who believes in Him and holds dear to His message, is someone that has visible, practical, right, Life. There's a, there's a transformation of life that has taken place, and that person begins to represent Jesus in how they live. And so we see that, that that's really what faith is. It's not just conceptual. It's not on a piece of paper that we say, yeah, I sign that. I believe in that. I adhere to that understanding of the Bible. Right? That's good and all that. But faith, following Jesus, leads us to the substance of our everyday life and the decisions that we make, doesn't it? That's what we see here, that she was known for her good works and acts of charity. The person I immediately thought of, just based on reputation, at least in our day and age, is what? Someone, Mother Teresa. That, for whatever reason, uh, whatever you want to say about all that, the bottom line is she was known for someone who was very uh, compassionate and giving and caring to the poor of this world. So when you see that, uh, you, you kind of get a, a thought of that. So basically, uh, this is, this is uh, the woman that we're meeting here, Tabitha. Now, verse 37, it says this, In those days she became ill and died. Wait a minute. I thought this was going to be a very nice, cute little story. Right? Immediately, we're confronted with the reality of a, what would seem to be an untimely, undeserved death. This woman, Tabitha, full of good works and charity, someone who loved Jesus, 
Someone who gave her life and stewarded it for the good of others, who was making an impact in a time where the church and the gospel's going forth. She text says that she became ill and died quickly. Just says it. She became ill and died. And I don't know about you, but if you pause for a moment, you begin to, maybe from a natural perspective, from a human perspective, begin to ask why. Why would this be? Considering the substance of her life, you know, you have to think that this just doesn't make sense. It's untimely. Surely it's undeserved. Uh, it doesn't seem right. You know, not to go uh, with the book, you know, why uh, bad, you know, bad things happen to good people or anything like that, but, you know, we wonder. Does this make any sense whatsoever? Made me think of another person, more contemporary example of this, uh, when, you, when you think about the, the life and the ministry of Jim Elliott. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Jim Elliott. Missionary uh, to Ecuador. Uh, you think, man, he, he had opportunities in the States to be in ministry, and for whatever reason, he felt called by God to go to Ecuador and to seek out this very remote tribe, uh, uh, this Indian tribe there, Ecuadorian Indian tribe. And so he's there, he's, you know, he and his wife, Elizabeth, is, her ministry is kind of vast and really grown throughout, throughout the last 30 plus years, well, now 50 plus years. The reality is this, she was probably reflecting uh, when, when they, she found out that her husband, going to the very tribe that he felt called to bring the gospel to, was murdered by them. 28 years old. Jim Elliott, 28 years old have so much potential impact for the gospel and the glory of God, you have to think to yourself, why would God do this? What is God trying to accomplish by taking the life or allowing this life to, to, to fade uh, from history? Why? His wife Elizabeth says this, which I think all the more highlights the why question. She says this, on the night before those five men who were killed by the Aukas went into Aka territory, that's the Indian tribe, they sang together, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. That's the song they sang. These people love the Lord. They trusted in Him. She goes on to say, what does your faith do with the irony of those words? There will be no intellectual satisfaction on this side of heaven to that age-old question, why? doesn't make sense from our perspective. The substance of this woman's life, the substance of Jim Elliott's life has to bring us to ask the question, why? Why would God be doing this? What is He up to when we read words about this person who's full of good works and acts of charity that in those days she became ill and died? And it's in this moment that the, the substance of her life really begins to highlight for us the tragic nature of her death. Losing her. The widows that she cared for, as we go to see in the text, imagine how they felt the loss. And, you know, the reality is this, is, you know, uh, this hits home for many of us here. As I was preparing this message and thinking about the reality of death, 
contemplating how awful it is. It can easily be just kind of dealt with superficially, but we all are going to face or have faced in some way, shape, or form the reality of death. Right? People say, what's life all about? Death and taxes. Right? We can't escape it. Sin has so wreaked havoc on the world that these kind of things happen. This should not be, we say. This should not be. And when I see people and, and, they, and they engage death, Sometimes they explain it away with sentimentality. And every time I see it, I think to myself, friends, this is not supposed to be. This is not right. We're not supposed to die. But this is what sin has done. Sin has ruined the human race. And the ultimate consequence is that, death, right? Death. And so here she is, although a, a woman full of good works and charity, dealing with the ultimate consequence of human depravity, death. And it seems in the moment to be such a hopeless situation. And the sorrow and the pain for the Christian community and what we've felt as people that we love and appreciate have, have died unexpectedly, untimely, and in many ways we would see it as undeserving. And we feel the weight of that sorrow. Losing another person is the greatest loss there is, isn't it? You can lose a ton of cash and assets. You can lose in one-on-one -on -one to Silas. You know, you can lose a lot of things. But to lose people, that's a sorrow unlike any other. This you know. Death's inevitable. So what do we do? What do these people do in this moment? In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. But the text goes on to say this, since, since Leda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him saying, please come to us without delay. So they hear that Peter is nearby. And the text doesn't say what they're thinking, but maybe they're holding out hope for God to do something. Maybe in the midst of their hopelessness, they're holding out. That maybe God could do something miraculous that would go against all of our expectations and radically reverse our hopelessness. I don't know. I'm reading into it. But nonetheless, we know that they seek Peter out. He's only 10 miles away, a three-hour walk. And the text says that this is what Peter does. Peter rose and he went there. In the midst of the hopeless situation, Peter didn't say, well, what do you want me to do? I'll pray for you. So Peter goes. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And the widow stood beside him weeping. There's grieving taking place. Showing the tunics and the other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Basically evidence of her good works, her charity. All the more highlighting their struggle after her loss. But Peter set them all outside from this upper room. And he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Interesting. Interesting uh, what Peter does here. You know, I, think, I look at what Peter does here. And, 
and just how he approaches the whole situation. And there's some thoughts that immediately come to my mind. I wonder if you just bear with me and go there for a minute. The way Peter responds to this situation tells me that he has this sense of inadequacy. He looks at a hopeless situation and he recognizes that he is inadequate for the task of dealing with it. There's nothing he can do. He does not have the power to do anything about this hopeless situation. That sense of inadequacy in the face of hopelessness, what does it motivate Peter to do? What does our sense of inadequacy motivate us to do in relationship with God? Pray. That's right. So when, when Peter goes and he puts them into the, he casts them out of the upper room, and the first thing that he does is he kneels down and he prays. I see that Peter wants something to be done, but he recognizes in the face of this hopelessness, there's absolutely nothing that he can do. Except go to the one who is adequate. I, I, I got to be honest with you, this, this text hits me squate, uh, right uh, square in the sin, uh, right in my sin. Because I am so prone and have such a propensity to, to no matter what the scripture says, to be like, I got this, I can do this, I'm, I'm adequate, I can figure this out, I'll show God what I can do for Him. And I wonder if many of you also struggle with that. That your first reaction is not to bend the knee, but to write the list. Whatever you're doing, in the menial issues of life or in, in true hopeless situations, like someone's death. Peter shows his humility, his sense of inadequacy, and he goes to the Lord and prays to the one who is adequate. Not only that, I think Peter, just looking at the situation, portrays for us a keen memory. Not just a sense of inadequacy, but a memory regarding his previous encounters with the power of Jesus Christ. Maybe I'm wrong. Again, I might be reading into this. I might be going Francine Rivers on you. Just kind of reading into the text, drawing out details that may or may not be there. Excellent writer, but you know, it is what it is. Is it possible that Peter remembers Elijah's raising of the dead son of the widow of Zarephath. Do you think he remembers that? Do you think that Peter remembers Elisha raising of the dead of the son of the Shunammite woman? Do you think Elijah, or I'm sorry, do you think that, that, that Peter remembers Jesus raising the dead son of the widow of Nain? Do you think that, that Peter remembers Jesus calling forth after days and stench, into the tomb of his buddy Lazarus, saying, come forth Lazarus, and him walking out. Do you think he remembers that? Do you think Peter remembers the power of Jesus that was on display in the healing of Jairus' daughter who had died? Do you think Peter might remember his previous encounter with the power of Jesus over death? Yeah, maybe I'm reading into it. But if you look at this story, almost only one letter is different from the healing of Jairus' daughter. When Jesus looked at Jairus' daughter, he said, Talitha Kalum, which means child arise. 
And we see here that just to be is different. It's the same word, same phrase. Tabitha, kum. Tabitha, arise. The putting of people out. And then the, after the raising, the, the presenting of her alive. This is almost word for word, detail for detail, the exact incident that we see with the healing of Jairus' daughter. Do you think Peter remembered that as he comes with a sense of inadequacy and a keen memory about that? Not to mention the grand poobah, right? The resurrection of Jesus, His very message, where He saw the crucified Christ raised from the dead on the third day. Do you think He remembered that? Do you think he approached the situation with a memory of his previous encounters with the power of Jesus over death? I think so. Maybe not. A sense of inadequacy. A keen memory about the power of God over death. And we also see here that, that really he trusts in the Lord. In the face of this hopelessness, in the face of what is really the pinnacle of hopelessness, death irreversible reality, at least from a human perspective. There's nothing, 108 people, 108 billion people estimated have lived since the beginning of the world. Again, who knows if it's right, right? 108 billion people. All of them have died. Except for, oh, you're going, not Enoch, not Elijah. You got me. Can we say percentage-wise it's pretty fair? We're going to die. Death is inevitable. From a human perspective. But Peter faces this situation with faith in the power of Christ. He knows and trusts in the fact that God has the power to enliven the dead. And what does the text say? She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. He says, Tabitha. Arise, get up, wake up, hello, let's go. And what does she do? She opens her eyes, she sees Peter, she sits up, he gave her his hand, raised her up, then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. His prayer and God's response to that prayer reveals to us clearly that God has the power over everything that is hopeless. There's hope in Christ. Even in the face of what would seem to be the most hopeless of situations, death. And not all of us in the face of death, death see that kind of power. Not everyone has been raised from the dead due to some miracle, at least from a physical perspective. That's not the case in all of our experiences. But there are these moments in history, back to Elijah, all the way you know, to this moment where we see that God reveals himself powerfully that he has the power to enliven dead people. He is the author of life, and he can breathe life into anyone and anything at any time. That's what he can do. Think of the valley of the dry bones. Just bones. And yet they rattle, and they have flesh, and they breathe, and they walk as an army because of the power of God. This is the God we know. This is the God we worship. A God that has the power to enliven the dead. And I was talking to Doreen in sermon prep. I think, it's kind of like boring, like saying the obvious. Hello, is this not radical? 
considering what we deal with in this world? That God has the power to enliven the dead is a hope-infusing reality. It has to be. For it deals with our most tragic human problem. Separation from God forever. That's what it did. It deals with the sin, too. Right? If, if he has power over death, which is the consequence of sin, it tells us that he has power over the thing that caused it. He has power over our sin to deal with it through Jesus Christ. This is gospel. This is good news. And so my question for you is this. As you engage your own brokenness, as you think of the brokenness and the hopelessness of other people in your relationships, do you approach brokenness with a sense of defeat? I think that's a good question to ask. It's never going to happen. They don't believe. God can't change them. It, I've seen it time and time again. Do we live in like this frustration and sense of defeat when we look at the hopelessness of this world? Oh, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. There's so many cliches that I hear all the time. But the reality is, is that God has the power to enliven the dead. And so I wonder, do we approach the hopelessness with that kind of anchor in our soul? Do we have that sense of inadequacy? Do we, are we driven to our knees to cry out to God who can deal with our hopelessness? I pray that we do. What a miracle, right? So quick in the text. As he raised the dead. And yet God's not done. Text says, verse 42, and it became known throughout all Joppa. Right? It went viral. Right? Things today, you know, nothing of mine ever goes viral. You know? But what do you expect? You know? But a story like this, right? Went viral. It was all over the place. The whole city heard about it. New York Times did a little article on things that tend to go viral. Right? What makes a story kind of spread the way that it does? Well, first of all, stories that evoke emotion are number one reason. Like, in, in really, you look at the, the, the more uh, powerful emotions like joy, intense joy, excitement, happiness, and also anger. Right? Someone's really mad, that emotion. It, stories that evoke that emotion, really, those are the ones that tend to just kind of go crazy all over the place. Anything that in the story that, that is, causes uh, some sort of memory-inducing thing, like, like oh, I'll never forget that, based on that unique thing. And of course, the quality of the story itself. Friends, i got to think that this story would have all, may meet all those qualities. Based on the human condition, based on human expectations... that the news that Tabitha, who was dead, was raised from the dead through simple prayer and call, and the power of God showed up to do something that no technology can really do, no matter how hard we study, no matter what we do with, with genes and, and, and all that, whatever we do in science, I'm no scientist, 
can never fix that problem. But all of a sudden, in the midst of human history, someone that is dead is now alive. I got the feeling that there's going to be emotion attached to such a declaration. I got a feeling that it's going to be memorable. How could you forget that? And the quality of the story is unparalleled. This went viral. The whole city heard about it. Well, whoop-de-doo. Right? What we see really is the significance of that. It went all throughout the city, and many believed in the Lord. And we see that one miracle leads to many miracles. And now we begin to see what God is doing. What is God doing? In the midst of what seems to be hopelessness, and then the addressing of that hopeless condition, what is God doing? He's not just raising people from the dead physically. He is doing something through the revelation of His power to raise people from the dead spiritually. Yes, one person died physically and was raised from the dead physically. But the greatest miracle I see here is the revelation of the, of the power of God over death in such a way that it causes people to say, I believe in that. That did what nothing else can do. It gave people life when there was no life. I rely upon that. I believe in that person. The source of that power, I'm willing to build my life upon. So one miracle exists for another. right? The story that was pervading the whole city about someone who had died and was now being raised to new life was really a great story that pointed to the power of God over death and the power of God in Jesus Christ over sin. The thing that causes our hopelessness. And hope began to fill the city because of the power of Christ over death. And this one little story is a grace story, if you will, that causes other people and gives them evidence to the resurrection of Jesus and says, yes, I see that and I believe in Him. And that's what God's going to do in our lives. That's what He has been doing. Our transformed life. The fact that we've gone from death to life, and now we see the effects of that, the resurrection of God. People begin to interact with that reality, and they want to know what's up with that. And your life, to some degree, in the midst of your small little world, goes viral. And people see it. They recognize it for what it is. It's not of this world. It's of another kingdom. And just like Tabitha, while maybe not as dramatic from a physical perspective, again, it's a picture of what God is doing in all of our hearts as we put our faith and trust in Jesus. We were dead in our sins. God made us alive together with Jesus. Many people believe. Are you crazy enough to believe that God's going to use your story? Is God still raising people from the dead? Look at us. He's going to use that. It's my prayer that all of Liverpool, Baldensville, Clay, now we're starting a missional community in, in Cicero, North Syracuse, it looks like. All these northern suburbs. It's our heart and prayer that as we go, and live life in the midst of these suburbs as we're sharing the story 
the resurrection story of Jesus applied to our life and what that looks like, people begin to believe. They begin to see it and believe it. And revelation through that leads to response and more people begin to believe in Jesus Christ. That's what I see. That's my hope. God has the power to enliven the dead and quicken the unbelieving to faith in Jesus Christ. Both miracles. Enliven the dead. Quicken the unbelieving to faith in Jesus Christ. The text says that he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. We see the gospel is going forth. It's growing. Right? And we see that as we look back. We see it in the moment here in Acts chapter 9. And as we look at the rest of the book, and, and by the way, this is, for now at least, our last message in the book of Acts. We're transitioning to the book of Colossians after Easter. Uh, just a heads up about that. But what we see is we're seeing this progression, Acts 1.8, right? J Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And now with the spread taking place throughout all that region, and, and, and Paul, once Saul, is living into his calling to reach the Gentiles, we see that, that next it's going to Caesarea with Peter. It's going to Antioch and Cyprus and Iconium, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus. Where the books of the Bible, at least the rest of the New Testament, we see many of them come from. The spread of the gospel throughout the world to the ends of the earth. And now here we are. You know, it gets to Rome finally at the end of the book. And Paul is declaring the gospel to people in Rome, which is the known end of the world at that time for the most part. But look, it didn't stop there, did it? Here we are 2,000 years later in North Syracuse, North Central Church on a Sunday night, and the gospel continues to go forth in the lives of His people. And it's our hope that as it continues to do that, that many more <laughs> will believe in the Lord. God has the power to enliven the dead and quicken the unbelieving to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I confess to you that I don't have adequate words to explain the radical nature of your power and your glory that is on display in this passage that we looked at tonight. Nothing can properly illustrate the magnitude of you, but we are grateful for its reality. We praise you that you have the power to raise people and sinners from the dead. It's me, Lord. It's me dead man walking around and yet you came and grabbed me and you woke me up to the wondering glory of Jesus and I know so many of the people here probably all of them for that matter say that's what you've done Lord 
thank you for salvation. We thank you for the breath of life. We thank you for the hope. We know that sin, Satan, and death are defeated foes. And we cling with a sense of inadequacy, with complete reliance upon Jesus as the source of our life. And we ask that as we represent that life, work, home, community, that many hearing it will believe in the Lord. In Christ's name, amen.